All right. Uh, the hymn is in the bulletin. Uh, there's an insert in the bulletin, which is easier. Now, we didn't sing this last week, which is the irony of last week is manifold, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. But that it was a hymn day, and then we didn't actually look at the tune of the hymn. But it should be familiar. So we'll do one, two, and three, and then ten. And I'll just sing stanza one, and then we can all sing two, three, and ten together. Whoever would be saved must hold the Catholic faith, for all men are depraved ere their first infant breath. All merit condemnation and need Christ's free salvation. We dare not trust another, none else can save his brother. Thus all must hold the Catholic faith or bear eternal death. This faith owns one alone, true God whom all must trust, the Father and the Son, as well the Holy Ghost. This is one true Godhead, all idols are excluded. He wrought the world's creation, and also man's salvation. Through Jesus Christ, the Son, our Lord, the eternal saving word. These three in Trinity are each one God and Lord, yet God in unity, one Lord to be adored. Three persons co-eternal, all one in might supernal. In boundless deep compassion, desiring man's salvation. O oh, one in highest majesty, one God yet persons three. Then let us unto death confess most heartily this one true saving faith, the Christian verity, and show our God and Savior true thanks by our behavior, till we in songs resounding our praise on high are sounding, with mighty angels round his throne, yea, praise to him alone. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. Almighty and everlasting God, 
you have given us grace to acknowledge the glory of the eternal Trinity by the confession of a true faith and to worship the unity in the power of the divine majesty. Keep us steadfast in this faith and defend us from all adversities. For you, O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, live and reign one God now and forever. Amen. Hey, Psalm 63, 8 is the verse of the week. Let's speak this together. My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. My soul. Firstly, who is the one that's speaking? Just for the context. Yeah, David. So David is speaking. And when David is speaking, you can also say that it's Christians who are speaking because are David's words only for David? No, they're for you too. That's why we say to praise, pray the Psalms. And my soul. Um, this is synonymous with saying I. I follow close behind you. So when we talk about, oh, my soul praises the Lord. Okay, that means I'm going to praise the Lord. But it has a deeper meaning. And can you think of what the deeper meaning might be? Why the word soul? Because we know that you are more than just your soul, just like you're more than just your body. What does St. Paul say about the soul with respect to something else? Warring. The spirit wars against the flesh. So when we say my soul follows close behind you, this should bring to your memory that the flesh is against the spirit. And what part of you is it that really truly desires and works to bring you along following after the Lord? Your soul, your spirit, the part of you that's been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And what does it do? It follows close behind you, who is? God, yes. The Lord, we'd say. All right, so psalms are, the uh, psalm verse is typically split into two parts. So, my soul follows at, uh, close behind you. Okay, and your right hand upholds me. What does it mean to say right hand? Yes, how? Why? Why Jesus? Why is that the answer? Okay, right. Okay, there's one thing. Ascension. That's at the right hand. What else? What does it mean to be at the right hand of God? What did the disciples ask Jesus? James and John, what did they ask? To be at the right and left hand. Why? What is their request? To be what? Okay, to be the most important person, which is a question about what? Power. 
So right hand means power. And it is a symbol of might. So you'll see something like a prayer to God in the Old Testament. Oh Lord, by your right hand deliver us. Or the Lord was, his right hand is strong and mighty. Okay, well, does that mean that he only works out his right arm? That his left arm is weak, but his right arm is strong? No, because it's not, it, it's not something that's meant to be taken quite as literally as that, but it is a sign of might. Now, there's also, in the, in the hymn, uh, O Little Flock, Fear Not the Foe, which is hymn 666, there, that was on purpose, by the way. I got it straight from the horse's mouth. They did that on purpose. O Little Flock, Fear Not the Foe, one of the lines is, Make bare your arm. To make bare your arm is to say you're rolling up the sleeves. Now, all right, you want to go? It's, it's rolling up your sleeves and getting ready to go. It's, all, it's a sign of power and might. So your right hand, all of this about power and authority and might and you know, he, who is the one that is in charge? Well, he is. Your right hand is the one that upholds me. One other thing that I would, I would want you to remember about right hand is the uplifted hand. I can think of two instances where you should be thinking of the uplifted hand. Can you think of those two things? Yes, that's a, pref a prefiguring of it. I mean, in, as it pertains to Christ. You're, you're right. I mean, that's a type of what I'm looking for. He said Moses, li the, li the lifting up of Moses' hands. No. There's one really obvious one and one that's not so obvious. On the cross, right. The uplifted hands. And then there is something else, and I'll give you the hint, and that is you see this every time you come to church. Yeah, the blessing. The uplifted hand. So the right hand of God is not only something that has power and strength, but it is also something that has blessing. There's a reason why the the pastor lifts up his hands to do things like that, to give you the hand of blessing, the Lord's uplifted hand, okay? Now, your right hand, you uphold me. How do you uphold me, O Lord? Because when we're talking about Lord here, it is Christ, and who or what is Christ? Pardon me? Yeah, he is the Lord, but I mean... Eternally, what is Jesus? John 1. The Word. Jesus is the Word. So you are, my soul follows close behind you, that is the Word. And your right hand, that is the right hand of the Word, upholds me. So it is the Word 
that upholds me. It is the word that delivers me. It is the word, not just the words, but the person of the word that you follow after. Do you see that? And it is the word who lifts up his hand, both in authority, in majesty, in glory, and in blessing, and then satisfies you, and lifts up his hand to feed you. Let's speak this again. My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. What does God's word say to bishops, pastors, and preachers? He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine He must hold firmly, which means he must be unwavering, which means that your pastor must have a backbone. There are a lot of mamby-pamby pastors out there who, when push comes to shove, are willing to sacrifice what they teach to make people happy. If your pastor is ever like that, you should call him to repentance. Again, you need to hold your pastor accountable. If your pastor is weak, and if he is not holding firmly and unwaveringly to the trustworthy message, which is what? What is the trustworthy message? Okay, and what would we call that? There's a word for it. Salvation. Yes, it is salvation, but that's not the word. What does the pastor preach? The gospel. The trustworthy message is the gospel. Excuse me, which is in its entirety the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and your life in it. Uh, he must hold firmly to that as it has been taught to him, which means that the pastor is not to deviate. The pastor is not to mess around with the teaching. The pastor is first to receive and then to turn around and give. Not to take, mess with, and then give something new, but to take the same thing that has been handed down and handed down and handed down, receive that as it is given, and then continue to give that on. No messing around. There's a funny quote about the liturgy, and it goes like this. Don't touch it, you'll break it. Don't mess with the gospel. You will break it. Just take it, and pass it on. That is the job of the pastor. And if your pastor is messing around with the gospel, and you can, you can know that he is doing that, and you ought to be paying attention to it, because you should be testing. The Didache says that the preacher who comes, in, or the prophet, is what they call the pastor. The prophet who comes into your midst ought to be tested. And you should only trust him when he has been proved to be true. And how is it that you test to ensure that what the pastor is giving you is the trustworthy message and that he's not messing around? How do you test it? By paying attention to Scripture, by measuring it against Scripture, and by measuring it against what the church says about Scripture. I can say lots of stuff about scripture and you could go look it up and say, well, I guess this could be right.
But when you look at something like the creeds of the church, the historic teachings of the church that are passed down, so even something like the small or the whole Book of Concord that we're, I am subscribed to and the congregation is subscribed to, if anything that I teach or preach deviates from any of that, that's on me and you need to hold your pastor accountable because he must not mess around. Why? So that he can encourage you, you are others, by sound doctrine. How does a pastor encourage by sound doctrine? Two ways. The first, by preaching. The second, by teaching. I give you sound doctrine by preaching and teaching, and all of that can be summed up in this. I lead you. So if I'm leading you through dangerous areas, paths untrod, taking you to strange water holes that aren't on the map, that should concern you. You know, the pastor does not have the luxury of telling everybody else in his van, don't worry, I, this is a shortcut. I, I know where I'm going. If the pastor ever says that, hop out of the van. Or knock him out, throw him in the trunk, and steer until you get that thing back on the road. Okay? And he is to refute any who oppose it, that is the faith. Which means that the pastor has to be ready to defend the faith and to do it publicly. Now you have to be ready to give an account too, but the pastor is the one who publicly stands up and defends the faith. I am the person on the front lines and you are the people who stand behind me. I'm like the general who rides out on his horse and you are the rest of the soldiers that stand behind me ready to go. You'll follow me into battle, but the general leads. And well, I'm not the real general. I'm like, I don't know, lieutenant or something. I do what the general tells me to do. And you do what I tell you to do. You follow me as I follow him. The chain of command is a very real thing. Uh, so, I am to defend the faith. I am to battle for the truth with any false teachings, which is why public heresies, publicly false statements of the faith, are met publicly. Remember we did a whole study on the Trinity because there was a public um, accusation about how the Trinity was an invented doctrine. Now I was kind in how I addressed that, but still we defended the Trinity publicly. You go look back through the history of the church and there's all kinds of defenses of the faith, apologies of Christendom. Hey, we have an apology in the Book of Concord even that does this, seeks to do this very thing, refute anybody who opposes the, the faith. Okay, kids, you may go. This is part two, adults, of me telling you, hold your pastor accountable. Just because he's your pastor does not mean that he is God. When he is functioning in accordance with his office, he is Jesus to you, but not by virtue of the fact that he is a man. That is by virtue of the office. Your pastor can, will, and does make mistakes, and your pastor can, will, and does sometimes fail in his duties to you as pastor. This is not a relationship of tyranny. It is a hierarchy, but it is a hierarchy of love. You are, in this, in this scenario, it's, it's like a husband and a wife. Every good husband should do everything that he is supposed to do within his household without having to 
be reminded or nagged about it. And every good Christian wife, therefore, must ensure that when her husband doesn't do the things that a good Christian husband is supposed to do in the home, she reminds him and nags him until he does it. That is the relationship of pastor and people. It is, in a very real sense, sort of like a marital relationship. That I am, the, I am, I am daddy, in, the, in a certain sense, just I am father to all of you children, but in another sense, the congregated body of you children are also like the wife who is supposed to hold me accountable. That if I am not preaching truthfully, that you, not, you should not just sit back and say, well, that was strange that pastor did that, but I'm sure he has a reason for preaching falsehood. Uh, uh, no, if your pastor preaches something false, then it's your job to come to him and say, now you said this, and uh, ah, blah, 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 whatever. I think that that's not true. Like if your pastor ever says from the pulpit, Jesus wasn't truly God. He was only part God, and Jesus was fully man, but not fully God. Then don't sit back and go, well, you know, he did the study, so he must know what he's talking about. Uh, come and say, now I don't really know if that's in line with what the confession of the church is, pastor, because all of the ecumenical creeds say that Jesus is fully God. So come to your pastor, and a pastor worth his salt, if you ever come to him with something like that, should repent publicly and seek the forgiveness of his people for that. But anyway, hold your pastor accountable. Treat, I mean, the, the office that the pastor holds is an office that's worthy of respect, and it's nice of you to respect the man as well, but that's not required. What is required is that the pastor love his people and care for his people and preach and teach truthfully and faithfully to them. And if the pastor is not doing that, it's your job to hold him accountable and to say, you need to start preaching the truth, pastor, or else we'll call the circuit visitor. Or in this case, you can just go straight up to the district president because I can't deal with myself. <laughs> I suppose you could call my wife. She, wouldn't that be like the wife of the circuit visitor would be like the circuit visitor for the circuit visitor, if she is a good, pious, faithful woman, which my wife very much is, much to her, uh, her credit. Um, okay, now, any questions about any of that, the catechism or the verse? There's a lot in that verse. Don't read the Psalms and think that because the verses are short, they're simple. Sometimes it's the simplest verses that are the ones that'll get you. Okay, there is a handout that should look like this. It's just kind of a chart with a lot to read, and I'm not going to go through all of this today. It's mostly a reference for you to take home and look at yourself. We're going to look at some of it today. Here's the, here's the deal, okay? Last week was like a fire hose, which I didn't intend for it to be, but I acknowledge after the fact that it was, and I had a number of folks come to me and say, perhaps we could go through some of that a little slower in a little more detail. Uh, 
So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to go through some of the same stuff about the Trinity and about the, the different heresies and why the Nicene Creed and the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Ephesus and the Council of Chalcedon and the Athanasian Creed all matter. And what issues specifically those, th those creeds and those councils were dealing with as far as heresies of the church, why those heresies are wrong, and what it is important to affirm in light of those heresies. So the chart that you have here is basically every single early heresy of the church. Why don't we have any uh, modern heresies on a sheet like this? Yeah, because the devil keeps reusing his materials. Did you know that for a, a long while, um, any, and this, was, this goes back even to the medieval period, people just didn't really learn church history beyond the year about 900. Well, why? Doesn't church history matter? Speaking as somebody with a degree in church history, yes, it matters a great deal. But why not teach it beyond 900? So here we are in the year 1500, but your church history only went to 900. Why? It becomes redundant. Because all of the heresies and all of the issues that the church addressed have now come full circle. So like the modern day right now, we're dealing with one of the biggest and most pervasive heresies of the church through her entire history, and that is Gnosticism. So how do we respond to Gnosticism? True story. Maybe I shouldn't tell this. Gnosticism is the teaching that everything that is physical is a hindrance to you and that the body and the soul are completely separate things and the soul is good and the body is just a cage or a prison that's bad so you want to get rid of the body so that you can finally be a spirit and attain to all of the things that are spiritual that are really good. Here is a practical example, Rhonda, of, of, uh, of Gnosticism in the modern age. My body says I am a boy, but my mind and my feelings, feelings are the secular language for spirit or soul, because they won't say spirit or soul, but they will say feelings. That's their equivalent. My body says one thing, but my spirit says, I, my feelings say that I am a girl. Well, already that's Gnosticism because the two are separate things. Now, the spirit and the flesh do war against each other, but they're not separate things. The body doesn't matter. It's what's inside the feelings that really matter. And in the end, the only thing that dictates anything is the spirit. And the body is just holding me back. See, now that's a modern example of how Gnosticism comes into play, that the spirit and the body are not the same. Um, yes, so all of these things continue to come around and around and around. Oh yeah, so here's the true story. Pastors are freaking out about the transgender issues in the modern age. And to a degree, they're right, at the least to be concerned about it, because no pastor is immune from having to deal with that.
However, pastors are despairing and are concerned because, quote, we don't have enough resources. CPH has not written enough books for us to know what we're supposed to do. So they cuddle up and curl up under their desks and weep and cry and complain. And I yelled at some pastors at circuit visitor training in front of the district president and told them to stop being babies and stop relying on the Synod's publishing house to give them every single answer that they want and to start looking back to what the church has already given them to deal with and look at history and take their strength from all the pastors that have already come before them who, yes, actually have dealt with all of these very issues. Men castrating themselves to become like women and women who began to be men. Yes, guess what? That happened in Rome. That is not new for the church. And yes, there are actually church letters that deal with that. Basil of Caesarea wrote something about that. Um, and others, too. Cyril of Alexandria has a whole letter about the debaucheries of the modern world. Men that want to pretend to be women and women that want to pretend to be men. Guess what? It's already happened. So, church, buck up. In the immortal words of Charlotte the Spider, chin up. Everything's going to be okay. We don't run around like chickens with our heads cut off. We look to what the church has taught us already, and we use the wisdom that we have been given, the wisdom that we have received, to address problems of the modern age. And if that means that then we publish more material, then we do. But we don't publish material, or shouldn't, in a knee-jerk, ah, the word I'm looking for is, you're, when you do something really hastily and, and reactionary, we're not doing it, oh no, <laughs> well here, try this, see if this works, oh I don't know, I better type some more stuff, because <laughs> that's where we are right now. Instead we should be going like this, huh, well let's look back and take everything, all of the trustworthy teachings that have been handed down to us and examine them and let's find what the church has already done to deal with this issue, and then let's take that and let's apply what the church has already done and taught and said and performed again in the modern age. And if you're at taking what is old and then making it new again, which is what the church is all about, then you are free to publish whatever materials that you want because you're doing the work to take what is old and to bring it to light again. That's all the church ever does, is take what is old and make it new, because the problems that the church faces are ever old being made new. So you just keep going back. So it's important to know these heresies because they're coming back, and they always will. The devil knows how to use his tricks very well, but he also has very few tricks to use. So it's sort of like a, a virus. How come you can keep getting the common cold over and over and over again? It mutates. it mutates. 
How come I can keep getting the stomach flu? How come I can keep getting the common cold? Well, because it changes. Your body, your body looks at it and says, okay, you're the common cold. Here's how I fight you. Bam, bam, bam. I've got you figured out. And then the common cold dies. And the body goes, hey, I'm pretty good, aren't I? Pretty strong. I figured that out. Yeah, you know, he's not going to come around here again. And then there's a knock at the door. And the body goes, yeah, who's that? And the common cold is wearing glasses and a mustache. Oh, no, I just got a delivery to make. Oh, okay, well, you look good because you don't look like the common cold. Come on in. He goes, okay, thanks. And then the common cold's back, and the body says, no, hold on a minute. How did that happen? I thought I was prepared to deal with you. And then what does the body do? It has to figure out how to deal with the common cold that now has glasses and a mustache. Oh, but now I know how to deal with you. You're not going to fool me again, says the body. And then you live the rest of your life continuing to get the common cold because it changes ever so slightly. That's how the devil works. Ever so slightly, the old false teachings are, you know, you, they put lipstick on them and then say, hey, look at it now. Woo, woo. And people go, hey, you know, doesn't look half bad. And so it's the old that continues to be made new with just a couple tweaks here and there so that you don't recognize it until you're in the middle of it and you say, now wait a minute. This is just Gnosticism, isn't it? And then I know how to deal with Gnosticism in my age, but it'll come back in another age of the church slightly different, but ever the same. So let's look at this. The creeds, whoops, ouch. The creeds are ever important for these reasons. And we don't need to talk about the scutum fide. We already talked about all of this. But this is what we need to talk about. Uh, the Council of Chalcedon is really the fundamental church council, which was in 431, I want to say. Yikes. It's, it's always bad when the church historian wants to throw out a date and then it's just not exactly. So. I think it's 431, something around there. The Council of Chalcedon. And Council of Chalcedon pretty much defined Christology, which is how we teach Jesus, who Jesus is, what he does. So everything that we say about Jesus basically comes from the Council of Chalcedon. But everything that builds up to the Council of Chalcedon at Nicaea and at Ephesus, all of these things uh, are then expounded upon and hammered down and said, we're no more discussion about this. This is how it is at Chalcedon. And here is the way that Chalcedon talks about Jesus, and it's, this looks way more complicated than it is, and I'm going to sum it up for you. There are four things to talk about. Um, I don't want to erase this because it looks nice. Okay. <laughs> well, I like the curve of the arrow and all that, so it would be a waste to get rid of it. Very rarely does it look nice. So the first level is the usia. This is all Greek language. Usia, which only means your being. Who are you? What is my being? Well, and this is, this is all about Jesus, basically. Okay, so there's God. Okay, that's one usia, one kind of being. And then there is human. That's the other kind of being. Now, what are you? Human, because you are not God. What is your cat? 
animal technically falling into that, or you are a part of the animal category, see, but this is dealing with rational beings, okay? So there's God and there's human. All right, what is Jesus? Well, Jesus is God and human. Okay, next level, the phusis. Okay, now that's, usia is just what you are according to your nature. But your phusis, where we get the word physical, okay, what are your characteristics? What's your nature? Well, you're either God or you're human. You're human. Okay, but now physically, phusis, what does it mean that you are a human? You have legs, you have arms, you have a body, you can see, you can think, you, all of the attributes of what it means to be human. That's the second level. So there is divinity and there is humanity. So there are things, you are a human and therefore you have all of the characteristics of humanity. Body, a heart that beats, eyes that see, ears that hear, a brain that works most of the time, and thinks and does things. That was a joke. Nobody laughed. I guess you're so enthralled by this. Then there is hypostasis, which just means the individuals, the constituent parts. Okay, so divinity, God. Who is God? What are his parts? Oh, Father, Son, oh, Father, Spirit, and Son. Okay, and the hypostasis means the, the relationship between them as well. So when you look at, if you ever look at the Greek of the creeds, it talks a lot about the hypostasis of the Father and the Son. And I had a professor, I took a whole class on Chalcedonian Christology. Uh, and I love this professor, he's great, but he has a certain cadence to his speech and he would always talk about the hypostasis. It's all about the hypostasis. So the hypostasis is the relationship, the, the persons and the relationship. So there's God, there's human. There's divinity, there's humanity. In God, who is divine, there is Father, Spirit, and there is Son. That's the third level. Now the fourth level is the prosopon, which is Greek for your face. So we pray that the Lord would put his prosopon toward us, or we say that the Lord is not a lover of the prosopon. He is not a lover of faces, which means that when it, so when you hear in the Bible it's translated shows no partiality, what that really says in the original language is not a lover of faces. I don't look at your face and say, oh, you're rich? Okay, I love your face. I love you. I don't, and then look at a poor man and say, oh, by your face I can tell you're kind of poor, kind of ruddy and messed up and dirty. And I don't like you because... So you look at someone's face and it is a judging or a loving of the face that means you're showing partiality. So prosopon is the perceptible person, just like that, face. How do I perceive you, Becky, to be Becky. Anybody can answer that. How do I, how do I know that this is Becky? Because she looks like Becky. How do I know that Daryl is Daryl? <laughs> yeah, because he looks like Daryl. Because he looks like Daryl, he acts like Daryl, he talks like Daryl, because all of those things are the outward manifestation of who you are. So, 
Let's put all these four levels together in terms of Jesus. And then you have everything that was affirmed at this Council of Chalcedon, everything we believe about Jesus. The usia. What is Jesus' level of being? Is he human or is he God? Yes. yes. Bling both. Fusis, the nature of the attributes. Is Jesus divine or is he human? Yes. Bling. Is he a part of the Trinity, his hypostasis? Yes. And what part of the Trinity is he? The Son, yes. Bling. And then lastly, how is the Son in both God and man, who represents divinity, who exercises and reveals divinity and humanity, revealed to you? How do you, or all of humanity, how does humanity interact with this? Physically, I mean. In Jesus. So that is what affirms, is affirmed. Now let's do it backwards, because it actually makes more sense backwards. Okay? The prosopon. How do you know God? You know God the perceptible person in Jesus Christ. Well, what is Jesus? Jesus is the Son, who is hypostatically, you don't have to remember any of these words. I'm mostly showing off, so I should repent. You should hold your pastor accountable. <laughs> the Son, he is the Son, who is, you see this, hypostatically a part of the Trinity, and here's where the diagram gets interesting. So here's the Trinity. Father is divinity. Spirit is divinity. Son is divinity. But Son is also humanity. And then within these two brackets, then, Son goes into divinity and humanity and then goes to God and human. So this diagram is a fancy way of saying this. How do you know God? Mm, no. Through Jesus. You know God through, yes, and you, I mean you're taught, but how is it that you know him? Through Jesus. Only in Jesus. Do you know him through the Ark of the Covenant? No. Do you know him through a pillar of cloud? No. Do you know him through a pillar of fire? No. The only way that you know God is through the Word, the person of the Word, and the person of the Word who takes on flesh that actually can then be known by you, which is Jesus. So how do I know God? I know God because of Jesus. And who is Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God. And what does that mean to be the Son of God? It means that he is divine and he is human. But how much of him is divine and how much of him is human? All of him. And if he is both divine and human, then what does that mean about his being? He is God and man. But what percentage of him is God and what percentage is man? 100. All of it. That's what's affirmed here in the Council of Chalcedon. Jesus is 100% fully God, 100% fully man. Which means that everything, every characteristic of humanity, he has. 
but also every characteristic of divinity he has. <clears throat> All right. Now, this is the first Council of Nicaea. By the way, today is, I just love the way that the church year works. Last week was Pentecost, and it was also, to the day, the commemoration of St. Boniface of Mainz, who was the missionary to the Germanic peoples. You can thank St. Boniface for being Lutheran, because St. Boniface was the one that turned all those pagan Germanic tribes into good Christian men and women. So just think about that for a minute. The proclamation of the gospel that is then going out to all nations being celebrated on the same day that we're remembering one of the missionaries that the church sent out to speak with a completely foreign peoples that then became Christians by the proclamation of the gospel. Oh, this is the kind of stuff that fills a pastor's heart with joy. And then today, it's a feast of the Holy Trinity, which is a huge day. But it just so happens that today is also the commemoration of the Council of Nicaea. Go figure. On the day that we are affirming the doctrine of the Trinity and the two natures of Christ, we are also commemorating that council of the church that gave birth to the creeds that we confess. Holy smokes. I mean, God just lines it right up. I don't even have to work to preach a sermon. God just does the whole thing. Just tee it up. Come on. Now, here's, here are some of these heresies that we're, we're talking about. Now, Council of Nicaea... Uh, and the second council of Constantinople. So there's four, four councils. First was at Nicaea, second was at Constantinople, third was at Ephesus. Oh, nope, Ephesus was 431. Chalcedon was 451, sorry. Uh, this is what they deal with. Firstly, up and down, is Jesus God or is Jesus man? Okay, but these are what the councils are dealing with. So. Council of Nicaea said, no, Jesus is fully God. Because the question was Arianism. And you can look on your chart, Arianism, denial of the true divinity of Jesus Christ, taking various specific forms, all agreed that Jesus was created by the Father. Is Jesus created by the Father? No, he is not. Because if he's created by the Father, then is he God? No. He's not. He can be maybe partly God at, at best, but he can't be God. So the Council of Nicaea says, no, the Son is uncreated. Now, where do you hear that language? The Father, uncreated. The Son, uncreated. The Spirit, yeah, the Athanasian Creed, which we're singing today, by the way. The hymn of the, the, hymn of the month is also the office hymn for today. You're welcome. <laughs> Don't say I never did nothing for you. <laughs> <laughs> okay? Yeah, it all, that language comes forth in the Athanasian Creed, which is basically the final nail in the coffin that says, no, 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 we've already talked about this, you can't think this, 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 and this. This is what the church says, and only this, okay? That was Nicaea. Now, the question becomes, okay, well, we know that Jesus is fully God, but what does that mean about being human? Well, Apollinarianism says, yeah, Jesus has to be fully God, of course. 
but he can't be fully man because God can't die. So he's not really fully God. Well, then the Council of Constantinople says, no, he is fully God. So we say God actually did die on the cross in Jesus. So that's that heresy. God is fully, or Jesus is fully God and he is fully human. Okay, very good. Ooh, but how many persons does he have? I will agree, says Nestorius, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. But he only has one person. He's just Jesus. And it's sort of like a big pot where they put some divinity and put some humanity and then stirred it up and said, hey, here's Jesus. That's what Nestorius said. And the council of Ephesus said, no, that's not exactly the way that this goes. Jesus is, oh, excuse me, I'm thinking of Chalcedon. No, Jesus does have one person. And Nestorius said, forgive me, I'm one council ahead of you. What Nestorius says is, Jesus is human and divine, certainly, but they're not connected. He has two persons. That there is, like, the, the Jesus who has his humanity hat on, and then there's the Jesus over here where he turns the hat around and then it's divinity. So that when Jesus dies, what part of Jesus is dying? The human part dies, because God can't die. So you see, he's still saying, yeah, I mean, I'm still saying that Jesus is fully God. I'm just saying it wasn't the God part that died. It was the human part that died. Now, where's the, what's a way that you can see this Nestorianism today? Remember when I told you that sometimes the simplest verses are the ones that trip you up the most? I'm gonna use Bruce's confirmation verse as an example. Jesus wept. Now here's where Nestorianism comes in. Ready? I'm about to turn you all into heretics. Did Jesus weep because of his divine nature? Or did he weep because of his human nature? Yeah, it's always good to answer both uh, when you're faced with an either-or question like that. Yeah, so Nestorius would say, and actually some Lutherans have written this too, Jesus wept because of his human nature, because God doesn't weep. So humans cry, but God doesn't cry. So Jesus weeps, and that's him being a human. Also like when he dies. But now when Jesus performs a miracle, is it human Jesus or is it divine Jesus that's performing the miracle? Yes. Uh, but Nestorius would say, can a human perform a miracle? Yes. <laughs> okay, with the help of God, yes, but if it's with the help of God, then who's the one doing the miracle? God. God is the one who does miracles through them. So remember what Mark writes in the last chapter about the disciples going out and preaching to every creature, and, the Lord <clears throat> and they worked... Uh, Miraculous signs, the Lord working in them. So the Lord is the one that's performing the miraculous signs. So a man cannot perform wonders. A man cannot raise anyone from the, the dead or turn water into wine or do anything like that. 
um, pull taxes out of a fish's mouth. Ah, you forgot about that one, didn't you? Hey, we need to, we need to pay the toll, Jesus. How are we going to get the money to pay the toll? Well, throw in a line here and then open the fish's mouth when you catch the fish. Oh, look at that. We've got the toll. Nobody talks about that because pastors are afraid because they don't understand it. And yes, I will say, I don't know that I understand it fully either, and I am kind of afraid of it too. So, anyway, that's that. Jesus has one nature, not two. When he dies, it is both God and man, because his nature is twofold. And when he performs miracles, it is both God and man. When he weeps, it is both God and man. Everything Jesus does is God and man. Then the last council of Chalcedon, so now we have, we have maintained that there's one person. Well, now Eutyches comes along and he says, okay, now folks, I believe 100% that Jesus is fully God. I believe 100% that Jesus is fully man. I believe 100% that there is one person. But Jesus only has one nature. That's, we put divine and human in and mix it up in a pot, and that's Jesus. And they said, well, no, no, he has two natures, and his two natures are God and man. <clears throat> so these are the four things, then, that the church confesses in specifically the Nicene Creed and then really hammers down on in the Athanasian Creed, is one, Jesus is fully God. Two, Jesus is also fully man. How can that be? I don't know. You know, I don't know what the worst question to ask in the church is. How can that be? Do what, your, what the Lord's mother did. How can this be? And just believe when the Lord says, with God, all things will be possible. Ah, yes, okay, well, whatever you say then. So, fully God, fully man. He has one person. He is not divided, and he has two natures in one, because he is fully God and fully human. Now lastly, we'll spend just a couple minutes here, then we need to get done a little early because the choir is singing. This is just a, a, a better illustration to you of the different uh, confessions that we're all talking about in these creeds and confessions. So Jesus is at the center of all of this, whether he is one person with two natures, and then whether he is human or divine. So there are, uh, you can overemphasize one thing over the other, and any time that there is a heresy, it's because it ends up being somewhere in here instead of being right at the center. So if you go too far this way, then you start to emphasize Jesus' humanity over his divinity. But, excuse me, you can also talk about Jesus' divinity and then forget about his humanity if you're not in the middle. Now you can also go this way and, and start to focus so much on Jesus having two persons that you lose the fact that there are a unity. And then going this way, you can focus so much on the unity that you forget the fact that there are still two persons. Okay? Or excuse me, two natures. Okay? So this is what the creeds uh, attempt to Whoops. This is what the creeds attempt to counteract by their confession. And so I'm giving you this handout then so you can look at this. There are a lot of the heresies that 
the creeds dealt with are here. Adoptionism, Apollinarianism, Arianism, Docetism, the Macedonians, the Pneumatomachians. That's a great one. Just, uh, you should just memorize Pneumatomachians because then you can look really smart. The spirit fighters, eh? The monophysitism, the monophysites, they're also Eutychians, all of this. Monothelism, Nestorianism, one of my favorites. Uh, oh, also Sabellianism, which came from one of the disciples of St. John. One of his disciples became a heretic. So don't think that just because somebody has, is brought up with really good teaching that they're always going to stay with it. Sometimes they get to be a little too smart, and it's typically the people that get too smart that start going the wrong way. Uh, just look at Seminex. Seminex in our own church body was all of the smartest people in our synod, for the most part. All of the grade A smartest people, and they all went off because they were so smart that they began to be, you know, that sort of enlightened. And their defense of what they taught was, well, if only that you knew as much as we knew, then you would understand that we're right. You say, well, that's not a great defense, and that's really not a way to win friends either. Um, and then one of my favorite of the heresies is patrapacism, which is the heresy that God the Father died on the cross because God the Father and God the Son are not really two separate things. It's God the Father who puts on different hats. Today I'm going to be Jesus. Oop, i got to hop back up into heaven really quickly. Yep, okay, now I'm coming back and I'm going to be Jesus. And then when it comes to die, he says, well, I mean, I'm the Father, so I might as well do that. So the Father dies as Jesus, uh, which is a heresy I think is really funny. Although there are all these people that say, oh, you know, God was a divine child abuser because he sent his son to die. Who are you, Father? Why do you love a father like that? And then you can just say, well, you know, the Patri Patripassianism says that uh, God the Father himself suffered. You know, you don't want to argue with heresy, but I always think it's sort of funny how you have one side that said, God the Father died himself, and the other side says, no, he'd never do that. He was so mean, he killed his own son. How cruel, you can't follow him. So... The world's a crazy place. But okay, just take a look at some of these things, and I guarantee you that as you start looking through them, you'll start to realize that these things are still all around you. The better that you're aware of them, the more you begin to know about them. But the most important thing is what we confess today, the whole point of having the Holy Trinity and confessing the Athanasian Creed, and on this day, you know, observing the fact that the Council of Nicaea happened on this day, uh, is to say, this is what we believe about Jesus and how Jesus relates to the Father, okay? We'll see you at the altar. Choir, we're going to go straight to the sanctuary.